Thank you very much. Oh, I'll take that for you. All right, how's everybody doing? Good, good to see you all. I'll move over here. Um, yeah, so we, we've been doing a few weeks on prayer uh, while I work on some side stuff. And, uh, and then I'm sure we'll be back in Acts soon, and we should be wrapping up pretty soon. And then we'll do a few things and probably jump into Romans. Um, yeah, um, yeah, so that'll be fun. And let's see. I did want to let you know, this is going to be a weird year for me. I'm doing like a ton of traveling that was all supposed to be spread out over the last two years. And guess who didn't travel? Any of us. Um, and so I actually have to go to Turkey in, Ju- in June. For like, we're gonna, I'll be going for like three weeks studying with McKnight on different things. It has to do with a master's program I've been in for a few years. And then um, I'm taking the band. We're going to Germany to play some shows. And then uh, it has to be fun. And then, uh, and then um, me and my wife are having our 20th anniversary in November. So we're going... We made it, despite what all the parents said, just joking. Um, uh, yeah, we're going to, we've not ever taken a sabbatical and we've been here 19 years, so we're going to bounce for a, about a month, so, but we have some awesome speakers coming, David Fitch, um, I'm a big fan of him, he's coming, a lot of woos, um, he's coming, he's going to speak, um, we got, Leo's going to bring the heat as well, and a few other people, uh, a few, um, I think Ruth, I think Monica, a few other people are going to bring it, so. I'm excited about that, and be, I'll be listening from wherever we are at the time. Um, but I think it's going to be a great year. Please, like, show up and, and support the people that are speaking. Like, this is not supposed to be about me. We're, this is a community. It's a level, level field here. Um, so last week I talked about prayer, and this week um, I'm sort of diving more into that um, as something that I want to encourage you to sort of explore in your life. A lot of us have struggled with prayers our whole life. Um, I have always struggled with prayer, and I have to constantly be shifting sort of how I pray so that it doesn't become sort of flat and, and meaningless, and, and I have to constantly be working at it. Some of you are just natural prayer people. You just pray all day long, um, and you're good at it, and uh, I kind of envy you, but I also enjoy the struggle sometimes as well and what it does for you and how it forms you. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into this and talk about prayer for a little bit, shall we? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us right now. You would join us here. Pray that this would somehow form us in a, in a particular way that, that opens us up to your kingdom and what you're doing in our world and in our midst. Um, I pray for the conversations that will be had this morning. I pray that they would be, um, they would be encouraging, that they would be life-giving, um, that they would be freeing as well. Um, continue to guide us and, and fashion us into whoever you want us to be and turn us into whatever you want to turn us into. Um, you are our host this morning. I pray that we would submit to you and in whatever way you call us to, that we would be, as we, as we talk about this subject, as we open it up, and as we look back over church history of, of what our brothers and sisters have done for thousands of years as, as they've prayed, I pray that it would, it would penetrate into our hearts and minds, that, that we, would, uh, we would join them and realize we are a part of something that goes back a very long time. We are part of a people who have a tradition that we need uh, to take part in, um, because we, we see when we let it aside, when we don't pick these things up, it we get formed poorly, we get distracted by false leaders in this world, and we chase them, and it just causes division. So bring us now back here, be our host, allow us to submit to you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so if I want to start off talking about freeform prayer. Um, most of it, and when I say freeform prayer, I mean the kind of prayer that's, um, that, that most of us do uh, from time to time. It's sort of what I just did just now, which is you launch, it's a, it's a, it's a launch, and then it's a, like, where are we going? Right, it's like a, dear Lord, uh, oh, uh, this, and then this, and then this, 
And uh, that's a very, honestly, it's a very American evangelical way to pray. Um, it's very personal, personalized. It's very, um, it's, it's something different that's relatively new in church history. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying, like, um, you, I, I want all of us to constantly be sort of deconstructing these things that we do, like, like prayer and opening it up and saying, okay, what has been done? What have I not, what have I not taken part in? What have I been missing? Um, and so most of us really do put zero thought into praying. We just we just pray. And that's fine. God hears that God's part of that. But I, I actually think there are ways that you can, um, you can do things that take you a lot deeper, uh, ways that sort of form you to listen for God more rather than talk to God more. Uh, and so I want to talk about some of those things this morning. Um, I think the primary purpose of all, of all Christian practices, of the sacraments, of what we just did, gathering and taking communion, uh, the worshiping, the, the singing, the sitting like this and listening to a, a, a sermon for a certain amount of time, all of these things are, are intended to create what the Celtic Christians used to call thin spaces. Um, I, I think the illustration I gave last week, my, my drawing, boom, masterpiece, um, these thin spaces, the places where the separation between heaven and earth is especially kind of thin. Like, there's times where you can feel it. There's times where uh, the emotion wells up. There's something else happening. There's some kind of spiritual thing. Um, and I would say baptism is one of these. I would say communion is one of these. I would say um, confession is a huge, a huge one. Uh, there's all these ways to create these places where the Celtic Christians would say, um, do you feel it? It's, 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 it's a very... Uh, spiritual sort of sort of uh, space to be in where you, you're trying to, like I said last week, the uh, N.T. Wright's picture of prayer, grab heaven and earth and pull them together, which is why prayer is so hard because it's very hard to sort of hold both of these things together somehow. Um, and so it, it, it sometimes is just a moment. It's, it's a place where we are fully subjects and citizens of the kingdom where we're fully under the reign of our king, where God and humanity are together sharing the same space. Again, it's the same thing that was supposed to happen in the Garden of Eden, the picture we're given um, on Mount Sinai, uh, the tabernacle, the temple, in Jesus, and in the, the body of Christ, in the church. These are all supposed to be the same thing. It's the place where God and humanity come together in the same space. Um, and so that's sort of what we're trying to do when we, when we pray. We're trying to access that space. Um, and so I want to talk about several forms of, of Christian prayer. Last week I talked about two forms of sort of prayer, one of them pagan prayer and pantheistic prayer. But in Christianity, I argued that um, prayer finds uh, sort of a, a whole new way of, of existing, a whole, new, um, a whole new center, a whole new purpose and a whole new meaning. And so there's two types of Christianity I want to talk about this morning, verbal and meditative. I'm sure you could say, well, what about this one over here? I, I, I think all, everything can sort of be put under these two categories, and that's debatable, and that's fine. Um, <clears throat> so... The first, I want to give you several sort of versions of each one. This is more of a teaching this morning, less of a sermon, although I'll try to be pastoral as we go. Um, but I wanted to start off with um, uh, talking about this thing called petitionary prayer. Um, petitionary prayer, bringing your petitions, your requests to God. And a lot of people have a hard time, especially in, um, if, you're, if you're more of a progressive Christian, that if you consider yourself um, in that vein of, of thoughts, um, you sometimes can have a tendency towards sort of the pantheistic prayer, which is the idea that God's the watchmaker, the clockmaker, who sets it all up and winds it back and lets it go, but doesn't really intervene again, and we're calling out across the void to, to just sort of, or like God's all around us, and we're just trying to like get in tune with what is happening, but God doesn't really jump in and change anything. And I push back against that. I, I do believe in petitionary prayer. I bring my requests to God all the time. 
Um, a lot, oftentimes we don't practice this type of prayer because God somehow isn't, we think, aware of our situation. Like, like we know God's aware of our situation, and so if he is, he could just fix it. Um, why would we bother asking as if God needs us to draw his attention to our problem? Um, and we practice petitionary prayer, though, because we are autonomous beings. We have been given choice and free will. We are allowed to make requests, and God welcomes it. All through the scriptures, people do it. I wanted to read this passage from uh, Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. Um, in our efforts to pray, it is easy for us to be defeated right at the outset because we have been taught that everything in the universe is already set. And so things cannot be changed. And if things cannot be changed, then why pray? We may gloomily feel this way, but the Bible does not teach that. The Bible, the Bible prayers prayed as if their prayers could and would make an objective difference. The Apostle Paul gladly announced that we are collaborators with God. That is, we are working with God to determine the outcome of events. It is stoicism that demands a closed universe and not the Bible. So oftentimes, um, like I said, uh, um, very conservative fundamentalist Christianity can pray in a way that's very pagan, and then progressive Christianity can pray in a way that is very pantheistic. Um, Christian prayer is neither of those things. Christian prayer, real Christian prayer, should be more um, uh, co- collaborating with God in what, we're, in, in what God is doing. Um, and I think Richard Foster's onto something there. Richard Foster points out that all through the scriptures, there are people who disagree that God's not active. There are people that say, oh, God is very active, and I, and I bring my request to God because I believe God will do something about it for whatever reason. And I know it plays with your, whatever maybe theology you have set on, on um, you know, Calvinistic sort of ways, like how much of, of life is already predestined or not. Uh, they didn't seem to really worry about that in the text. They, they literally just seemed to pray as if God was listening and could act. Um, I, I do often attempt to move God with my prayers. I do. <laughs> Whether or not I'm ever capable of doing that, who knows? Who cares? I'm doing it anyways. It's what I do. Um, I have things I'd like to bring to God that I, that I would like to see happen. And I call upon something that God has done. And I argue that, that if God's already done that, then he can do it again. And this is the foundation of what's called a collect prayer. We're going to get to that in a bit. Um, but I always pray for people, uh, whether I understand how it works or why it works, I do it. Um, it's a way I can serve people that I can't talk to and that I'm not around. It's a way that somehow I can serve this person that I may never meet. I know about them and what they're going through. I can pray for them and somehow I can serve them in this way. Um, to refuse to pray because I can't imagine how prayer works is just an act of intellectual pride. I, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to do it. Well, that's, that's silly. I mean... As if you understand most of the things that, that, you, that you do throughout the day, how they all work. You don't, and you, you take part in it anyways. Um, if I can't imagine how something works, then it can't work. It's sort of how we think, and I push back against that um, heavily. So I want to talk about some of these um, other types of, of verbal prayer. One of the, uh, the ones I want to talk about was guided prayers. Um, and so guided prayer is praying a prayer written by someone else. It has its roots in sort of a Jewish prayer practices, uh, it's sort of the ideas, um, the, the, the reason that this was important to the early church, James sort of touches on it in James chapter, chapter 4, and I talked about it last week as well. Uh, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, on your own passions. Um, and so here's the thing. Uh, to keep from practicing prayer the wrong way, the Jewish people had a specific formula for praying. Now, this formula for praying wasn't intended the way that sort of consumeristic, capitalistic American Christians tend to do it, where they ask for stuff that they want. Um, the requests of the Jewish people were very much wrapped in their identity and who they were. The things that they prayed for 
were freedom from the Roman Empire, was their own land back, their ability to live in peace and raise their children. Their idea of heaven was, was being able to live in their land and raise their children and practice their religion in a way that was unimpeded and blessed by God and, and in peaceful and blessing to all the nations around them. And so their prayers were very specific. We want to be free. If you, if you read the prayers of, of the Anawim, like the women like Mary, uh, who, who every day prayed um, that God would come and, uh, and even things out, lower the wealthy and raise the poor and, and all these things. This is what they were all calling out for. And James sort of argues that like, there are ways you can pray though for these things that are wrong. Um, and I would argue when we pray for these things in a way that bypasses how Jesus would do things. If Jesus is our vine, if Jesus, I am the vine. If Jesus says he's the vine, that means everything that we receive is supposed to be received, received through the vine if we are the branches, not from elsewhere, directly through Jesus. And so we can pray for freedom, but oftentimes pray for it in a way that's like, God, I pray that you would drop a nuclear bomb on all my enemies and kill them all. That is a false way to pray. It's not in line with anything God is doing. God intends to get rid of your enemies by making them your sibling. Uh, and often we don't want to pray about that at all. Um, and so oftentimes our prayers can reveal actually sinfulness in our own heart while we pray. Uh, so their requests, um, they, they, they believed there was a way that they should pray. And if you look back at the way they wrote and the way they prayed, um, the reason I, I read this passage today is because it shows, it's, it shows one of the ways that they would pray. You have, <clears throat> it starts off in the first three verses, it calls upon something that they know God has done before. Uh, you know, when the Lord, just, it sort of tells us that when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. It's calling back to this time where God did something and it was amazing and it, met th- made th- it set things to rights again and things were as they should be. Uh, and then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So he's like, and remember God, when you did this thing and everyone around us was like, wow, look at that God, he's great. And he's sort of buttering God up, right, to ask for something. But he's calling upon something that God had already done. And in the middle, the underlined portion here, this is the request. All of this is meant to serve the request in the middle. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in, like streams in the Negev. They were a people who had been banished, their city wiped out and destroyed. They wanted to go back and they wanted what they had before. They know they lost it because of idolatry. And it's sort of this thing where like, we want to be restored and we want to do it right. And so what they do is they call upon something that God had done in the past because they know that's in the nature of God. This is how they form their theology, by looking back. So it's in the nature of God. And so he asks for it. And then he says, and here's what would happen if you did. Uh, those who sow with tears will reap songs of, with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And so the idea here is that um, the request flows from the description already given at the very beginning. Uh, in other words, they're justifying their request based upon the character of God, the fact that they know that this is in alignment with who God is and who they know God to be. And so the idea is that if you can't find what you're asking for in the attributes of God, reading back over the story, perhaps you're being selfish. Perhaps this is not what you should be even seeking and asking for. Uh, Can you look back through the text and see that this is what God is doing and request? Because most of the things we're asking for tend to not be that way. A lot of the things we tend to ask for are the specific things that God wants to keep us from, lest it destroy us. Wealth, riches, success, fame, notoriety, things like that. Things that that cause pride to rise up, which will destroy you. And God's not in the business of giving you idols. And so this is where uh, the early church sort of developed this ancient Jewish practice into what's called a collect prayer. Um, it's a guided prayer. And a collect prayer is, it's, it's sort of like 
Uh, this is the vast majority of prayers throughout church history have been collect prayers. Let me put this up here for you. It just look, it says collect. So collect prayers. Um, it's a simple method of, of writing a prayer that you can use over a period of time. And the collect prayer was a standard uh, sort of prayer, the, way, the standard method of prayer for over 1,500 years uh, in the church up until the Reformation. It was designed to sort of keep our prayers centered on God and not ourselves. And along with the collect prayers were, were, were the, the pre-written sort of prayers of, of church liturgy, common prayer. Um, one of the reasons we do the Lord's Prayer every single week is because it gets sort of burned into your mind. Like, I can still quote the Pledge of Allegiance, even though I haven't said it since I was a little kid. Because when you say something repetitive, it sort of gets into your brain. And, and I remember a pastor once talking about this kid ran up and he said, hey, why is it every week you, you say this? And he sort of did this benediction. I think it was from St. Francis. He does this benediction every week. And the kid quotes the whole thing back to him and says, why do you say that? And he goes, that's why I say it. Right there. Because you memorized it without even trying. And now it's something you can take with you. So everything else you forget, this will stay with you. And so in the darkest moment, this may pop back to you, come back into your brain and, and give you something to focus on and pray about. So some people believe, though, that, that they must produce their own words when they pray and generate their own devotion and, and, and from scratch every single day. And you believe that I, these have to be my words, the, the prayers of my heart. Otherwise, I'm a weak Christian. What am I even doing? I'm not thinking deeply about it. And some people are so anxious to do things their own way that if they get help from anyone else, uh, they kind of feel like their prayer isn't authentic that this is, I mean, that's not an authentic prayer. We're just all praying something together that we're reading off the thing. It didn't come from my heart. Uh, or they believe that it doesn't come, if it doesn't come from their own heart, then it's useless. And oftentimes they're instantly suspicious of liturgical prayer and common prayers and stuff like that. And it's really odd because you're actually practicing a religion right now that you inherited, that you didn't make up. You walked in and you sat down, you're doing this thing that, that has been done for 2,000 years now, and you didn't invent any part of this. You, you're joining in. Christianity is inherited. We don't make it up as we go. We look back to move forward. Um, and when it gets off track, we don't, we don't put it back on the rails by inventing some new way of practicing Christianity. We go back to, to see where we got off the rails, and we put it back on, and we start pushing again. Um, and so Christianity is passed down. It's not made up as we go. Uh, do we feel that we aren't properly dressed unless we make all our own clothes? No, I mean, Shane Claiborne, yes, if you're familiar with him, he makes all his own clothes. Some people feel like that. But the vast majority of us, like, you didn't build your car you drive, you didn't write the books you're reading, you didn't, you know, nothing that you're doing is prepared by you. It's the hand, done at the hands of somebody else who knows what they're doing. And so it's kind of arrogant to think that, that, uh, that you, in, in, in your state of sort of anxiety and pain, and, and you're calling out to God, it's sort of prideful and arrogant to think that you in that state could somehow um, pray your most effective prayers. Uh, possibly, you need to pray the prayers of somebody who wrote from their, from their overflow, from their excess, somebody who was studying and, and reading and, and in connection with God and writes this prayer for you. And you can pray the prayer of a strong person when you're weak. Um, and I, this is the gift of the church going back. Christianity is passed down. Um, and for those of you who hold more, uh, uh, like a reformed view of humanity, like total depravity, I have a hard time thinking um, that your prayers that you're making up as you go, if you're totally depraved, are the most effective. Perhaps sometimes you need to lean on other people. Um, so 
Uh, just because the prayer didn't arise spontaneous, spontaneously from the depths of your heart, it doesn't mean it's not authentic. Uh, when we pray the Lord's Prayer every week, it's authentic. I mean it, and you mean it. We say it. It's our prayer. It's our, it's our, it's our cry to God. I, I don't want you to think that freeform prayer is bad in any way. Some Christians, some of the time, can sustain themselves and their spiritual life entirely through their own internal resources. They have done the work, and they are filled up. And some Christians, some of the time, can sustain themselves with just their own prayers. But no Christian can do that all the time. In times of difficulty, times of fog, uh, we need the prayers written from someone's abundance to guide us in our brokenness. Um, I mean, simple little stupid illustrations. When I started playing guitar, I didn't go out and just pick one myself, thinking that I know what I could pick. I'm like 13 years old, and I'm trying to pick out a guitar. I looked at my favorite guitar players, and I'm like, what are they playing? What cables are they buying? What picks are they using? And I'm just copying what they're doing because I want to be like them. And so it's perfectly, one, it's welcomed to, to pray the prayers of those who you're trying to, like, who, who you see as Christ-like and who uh, is, is an elder that sort of you are looking up to. It's perfectly acceptable and encouraged to grab onto what they're doing and pray that with them and follow in their, in their, uh, in their footsteps. Um, good liturgy. Liturgy is basically, it's, liturgy is a word that means the work of the people. It's other people's prayers. Liturgy is other people's prayers, okay? So other people's prayers, good ones, that's, it's an exercise in humility and gratitude to pray them. It's an accepting that someone else has said better than I can what I want to express, it's when you hear somebody say something and you say, they said it better than I ever could. I don't need to say it. They did. And so you bring that to God. And you say, like them, this is the cry of my heart. Um, and so let's, uh, yeah, let's look at the next one. Um, I want to jump into meditative prayer, I believe. Wait a minute. Oh, so this is a colic prayer that I wrote with my family last year. Because um, I was going to talk about the colic prayer. So yeah, the modern colic prayers that have been practiced for 1,500 years or so, like this is what they do. There's, there's sort of this... It starts off calling upon sort of God and sometimes the Father, sometimes the Spirit, sometimes uh, the Son. I, honestly, I will, I will pray to all three depending on what I'm asking for. If I need new life, if I need like rebirth, like resurrection in some way, I'm calling upon that Spirit who was hovering over the water, you know, doing that work, the things that we sang about. If I need guidance, if I feel like I'm in a desert, I'm calling upon the Father. And if I need, if I've been submitting to the wrong kings and, and getting involved in these earthly kingdoms too heavily, I need to turn back to my, my King, Jesus. And, and ask him to help me free myself from all this. So the prayer is written, Almighty God, who is above all gods, you display your love in your very being. So it's calling upon an attribute of who God is. Um, Trinitarian theology is that God is um, giving and receiving love fully. And, and, and out of this, our creation of humanity is, is spun as if we are to take part. God is a community and we are supposed to take part in this community. Uh, three in one, receiving and giving love. And here's the request. Grant us unity, love, and selflessness that we may enjoy in our, in, in our midst the love that you share. And then there's this, this sort of uh, ending. And, and so here's what we're hoping for. Here's the future we're looking for through the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like This is what we're looking for. Please grant us this unity, this selflessness. So we're calling upon a community of God that is selfless and that is unified and giving. This is what we want in our family. This is what we want to be uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like all three, like that's what we want to be like. Um, and so this is a simple collect prayer, and I encourage people all the time, sit down and, and work on it, write a collect prayer for you to pray for a week. If there's something that you want to focus on, go to the text and read the scriptures and look how God has acted. Call upon that, write that down, send it to some people, and pray it together. When you, when you wake up in the morning, read it, pray it out loud, pray it at lunch, pray it at dinner, pray it before you go to bed. Um, and it keeps you focused on, on, on what you believe God is doing in the world and how you want to take part in it as a co-collaborator with him. 
So the next thing I want to talk about, those are the verbal prayers, and there's a lot more to it. Next one I want to talk about is the meditative kind of prayer. Um, <clears throat> and I'm going to start off, <clears throat> excuse me, with contemplative prayer. And contemplative. Uh, I want to read this passage for Psalm 119. It says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. The word for meditate, uh, if you look at that word in Hebrew, um, it's the same word that describes a dog gnawing on a bone. Um, this is one of my favorite descriptions. I talk about it, I try to talk about it all the time so you'll understand sort of how a prayer is supposed to work. There's like a dog returns to the bone and chews on it constantly. You know, you give a dog a huge bone, and over a year, that dog will eat that thing all the way down to nothing and swallow it, or just bury it, and you'll never see it again, but probably gnaw on it. And, and that thing will get smaller and smaller, and that's the only way. You've got this huge thing that you're working through that you're, trying to, uh, that you're trying to become or that you want God to do in your life, and it's huge, and it's not going to happen in one prayer. So you return to this thought every single day. Um, and you meditate upon the things of God. Um, this is sort of how contemplative prayer works. It involves reflecting on an image or a phrase and sitting with it and holding it and remaining with that image. Some picture in the text, something that, that you can sort of imagine and envision as if you are there. This type of prayer comes directly from the Psalms um, right here in this passage. And so the, uh, the, uh, here I have a few um, sort of examples of this. One it's sort of like every version of prayer, there's like sub-versions and genres that have sprung up over church history, and they're, they're fascinating. I'm going to give you like three of them. Um, one version of this is, is called the Ignatian Prayer. Um, and so, where are we at? Okay, Ignatian Prayer. This was written in the 16th century. It became very sort of popular. It is a, it's named after St. Ignatius. He's the founder of the Jesuit order in the 16th century. Uh, Ignatian prayer sort of has three steps. You, you use your imagination to explore the depths of a story in the passage. It's, it's mainly focused on the Gospels and the stories there. Uh, and you read the Gospel stories individually, and you sit with it, and you contemplate it, and you imagine being there. Maybe one of the main characters, um, maybe attempting to look at the passage through the eyes of Christ and being Christ and trying to look at them the way Jesus did, these other characters, maybe being a side character, watching this thing taking place and imagine how, imagining how this would have hit you. But first, you use your imagination to explore the depths of a story in the passage. And second, you imagine being present there, note your own reactions and the feelings to that story and write them down in journal. Um, those of you who are, who are like journaling, journaling people, I've become one over the last few years, writing and writing and writing to get things out. Um, and then you speak directly with God about what delights or disturbs you in the passage. What don't you understand? What is happening that you push back against? What, what are you asking God for guidance for and wisdom for from this text? Like, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? How, uh, what is the mindset that Jesus had to have to react to his enemy in this way? And how do you grab hold of that? So this is sort of the Ignatian way of prayer. Um, and people have written a lot of books on these kind of things. And so I just wanted to sort of tip you off to like research this, research that. Um, and so another one is called Lectio Divina, and we practice this here um, over the years many times. We have groups that practice this. Uh, it's from the fourth century. It really, it, it has, it's a type of prayer with Jewish roots. It was first introduced to the New Testament church by Gregory of Nyssa um, in the mid-fourth century, um, around the time of, of, of Constantine and the establishment of the Catholic Church. Um, and it basically has four steps. It's four readings of the text. You pick a text. Um, and you read it four times, and each time you read it has a different reason for reading it. And this is, people look at this and they're like, well, this is a form of daily study and Bible reading. No, this is prayer. This is, this is one aspect of contemplative prayer. So the first reading is you're getting to know the passage. You're reading it and you're like, 
Have I ever read this before? You, you just understand what's happening. And then you go back and read it again. You focus on the details, all the things that you read past that you may have missed. Um, uh, and you reflect on what God might be communicating. You look for all the things that maybe you've never picked up in the text. Um, our context in which we are living affects how we read the text. If you read, let's take, for instance, the story of the prodigal son. We read it in America differently than everyone else reads it, especially if you're in sub-Saharan Africa. When you read that text, uh, when you ask them what it means, what the moral of the story is, it's completely different. Over here, we make it about a boy who's greedy. He takes his money from his father uh, and squanders it all, and this is immoral to us. We're Americans. We respect money. We gather money. We're good at making money. There's a way money should be handled. Everything he's doing here is wildly offensive to his father, and it's all centered on money. If you read this in sub-Saharan Africa, where there really is not much money at all, um, they don't notice the money. They notice, if you ask them, hey, what is this passage about? They're going to say, oh, it's about a famine. You say, what? What famine? But if you read the text again, and you look at the pieces that you haven't been paying attention to, put aside sort of what it's like to read as an American and try to read it from another point of view, what, what you'll see is maybe what they see, that somebody was in a famine and things got so bad and it's God rescuing them in this. And why are they looking at reading the passage like this? Because they live in constant famine. Why do you read it through the lens of money? Because we live in complete opulence all the time. And so part of the Lectio Divina is to sort of kick you a little bit out of your, out of your context as well. So the third reading is the response reading, reading back to God with a new mindset. Here's what I think you might be saying, and you ponder that for a bit. And then the fourth reading is a reading from peace. It's, I'm done. It's, you read it back and say, I get it. It's this. And you take that with you. Um, and this is a method of prayer that has been practiced uh, since, you know, since the year 350. People have been reading the text like this. Um, and it's the kind of things that we've just put aside and we've forgotten. We're very individualistic. We're, again, children of the Enlightenment. We live in a, in a liberal democracy where everyone, everything, is, everything is personalized, not communal. It's very different. Um, another version of um, meditative prayer is what's called apophatic prayer. And I love this type of prayer. It's challenging it, uh, it helps you do, um, I know the words become a huge buzzword that everybody hates now, but it help, does help you deconstruct well. I've been, doing, I've been talking about that for 15 years. I don't know what the big deal is. Um, things should be taken apart and put back together to see how they work and what's been added to it that makes it work worse. Okay, so things should be taken apart and put back together. So apophatic prayer actually helps us do this. Apophatic prayer, um, apophatic is a word that basically means to proceed by way of negation. Okay, and I love this. It's when you pick an attribute, a way people describe God, and it's negating that. It's, it's sort of like this. It's sort of, God is great. Okay, we always say this time, how great is our God? God is great. Or, you're a good, good father. Yeah, he's good. Okay. Um, God is great. God is not great in a way that we understand greatness. Because a lot of people that you will say are great are not great in the same way that you talk about God being great. I mean, you could say I love Jesus, but you say I love tacos. Like, it's not the same thing. It's not the same type of love. So you could say, I love God. And then the follow-up prayer is, I do not love God. And you pick apart sort of how you love people, and you say, I'm not supposed to love God in this way. There's another way that I love God. How, what does it mean that I love God? What's the sense of allegiance? What's the sense of following and commitment? What is, is he my Lord? Because normally when you, when you love people, you don't talk about them. When you love things, you don't talk about them the same way you talk about you when you love for God. So you could say, God is my father, but God is not my father. God's not my father in a way that my, fa- my father is my father. It's, it's different. Um, and you can pick sort of any adjective at all. 
and, and you sort of try in your mind to grasp how different God's version of this wonderful thing is than your understanding of it is. And it's complicated and it's difficult, but it's, it's really this, it's a really wonderful sort of filling exercise to help you think about your language of God and how you talk about God and the reverence with which um, you are not talking about God. Um, and so apophatic prayer was incredibly important. Uh, so, let, I mean, let's think about it. When we say God is strong, um, yes, God is strong. But when we talk about strength, we talk about strength as being sort of military strength. We talk about strength being powerful, sort of muscly strength. I remember in the 90s, there was this shirt people would wear. Instead of God's gym, it was like, gold gym was like God's gym. And it was like Jesus bench pressing a cross. Bench press this. He's got a cross on his back. He's, all, he's ripped. He's muscular. Like, and, and so when we talk about God is strong, and, and we sort of project our context of strong onto God. But you know, God is strong in a way that like he doesn't, <laughs> not like this. God is strong in a way that like he's faithful to you no matter how much you spit on him and run away from him. He dies for you. He's, he's strong in a way that when he's hanging on a cross, he can look at you and say, God, God they, don't, they don't know what they're doing. That's the strength of God. When we talk about being strong in, in a godly way, that's what we're talking about. It's this gentle um, presence with people. Um, and so God's strength is shown in his death on the cross, not through conquering and, and slaying and violence of any, of any kind. He's not threatening or coercive. Um, his strength is shown on the cross. He's displaying himself as poor. He's born in a stable. He's coming as an oppressed minority, dying the death of a criminal, and, and praying God is not strong. No, no. Praying that actually disrupts how you talk about strength. And it actually reforms how you picture strength in your own life. I can be strong, not in the way that they want me to be, but the way that God is. It changes you. It forms you. Your prayer should form you. You're not trying to form God. You may be petitioning God, please, like, listen for a second. I, I have an argument for you. And that's fine. God's, I, I feel like God's all about that, all right? God's in conversation with you. But I feel like these types of things need to happen as well. Apophatic language actually was so uh, important in the first thousand years of the church that it actually became used in the ancient creeds. Uh, there are... Uh, seven, possibly nine, uh, creeds, you know, like, like um, sort of what they call it, the creeds of the Catholic Church, Catholic and like little c, universal church, um, that we came together every, you know, century or two, and we would start with the Apostles' Creed, and it would be affirmed at Nicaea, and then some heresies would happen a little bit, and then so we would come back and meet again, and we would sort of add to it to keep, like, set the boundaries of, like, it's not that. And then we go a little farther, and we can't, no, we can't go there. So then we, we extend the creed as we go through church history to sort of cover all the bases of, like, not like that, not like that. And so this not like that language became, it's apophatic language. And what I mean is this, if you read the Chalcedonian Creed, you can see how um, they talk about um, God, and, and what the creeds are, all the church creeds are what define heresy. It's a, the big buzzword, heresy. Um, and what the creeds are, it's, it's, it's four things. It's, it's a description of who Jesus revealed God to be. So it starts off with, we believe in one God, uh, the Father, here's who it is, the Spirit, here's who it is, Jesus, here's who it is, and the church, Here's who we are. And that's what the creed is. And everything outside of that, this is what makes you a Christian. It doesn't say anything about how to read Genesis or Revelation or politics or heaven and hell. It doesn't say anything about any of that. All it is is here's who God is and here's who we are in the grand scheme of things. And this is what it means. And this is how a Christian is supposed to think and this is how a Christian is supposed to move through the world. 
And the problem is, we oftentimes want to describe God. We want to say, oh, this is exactly who God is. You're wrong about your description. God is this. And every time we go to describe God outside of the creeds, we stumble into a heresy, an Arian heresy. Or like we, we stumble, every time we describe God in some way, we try to say, well, Jesus is both God and man. Here's how. And we try to lay that out and describe exactly how it works. We always stumble into heresy. Every time you attempt to describe God, you go outside of the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. God is a mystery that cannot be described. There's attributes of God that can be described, but the greatest way that they describe God is through apophatic language. And so the, the Chalcedonian Creed, when you read that, this is where they started going heavy with, with um, apophatic language. It talks about a God who is without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, and there's a God. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I have more here. I accidentally did that twice. Without sin. Uh, God, is, God is without sin. And then it says, and, and when they're describing the two natures of God, instead of describing how God is both, how Jesus is both divine and human, instead of giving you an exact description so you can know, they do the exact opposite. They say, inconfusedly, like in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. So like, not separate, not fully together, like, stop trying to figure it out. Um, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, not parted or divided into, into two persons. Like, they're very, here's what they're doing. They're drawing like, they're putting all these notes. He's not this, he's not this, he's not this, so that you will find God in the center of it. So that you will, the, the boundaries are what God is not. But there is freedom to think about God um, in a way that God has revealed himself to you to be understood. And so we read the creeds, and we pray, and we do this apophatic prayer thing, and when we describe greatness, when we say, well, God is great, we're also a little bit stumbling on the edge of heresy because God is great in the way that we're talking about God being great, or are we talking about great in the way that God's talking about being great, in the way that God displays being great, and how do we know the greatness of God? How do we know any of these attributes of God? We look right at Jesus. This is how God's love is displayed. This is how God's... Um, fullness is displayed as how God's mercy and generosity, how God views the poor and the rich and the powerful and the weak. It's all in Jesus. And so this is how sort of the apophatic language works. It's a prayer that you're not using any terms to define God. You're instead defining God by what God is not and cannot be. Um, in this practice, it was so important for the early church as a means of preserving the mystery of God. And what they're trying to tell you is stop trying to figure it out. Stop trying to put your boundaries on the whole thing. Stop trying to say, this is exactly who God is. I have figured it out. The second you do that, the entire historic church enters the chat and says, hold on. We've dealt with this over and over and over. And this is not what we are supposed to be doing. Um, and so there's one more type of prayer that I wanted to leave with you. That's sort of a light, easy kind of week, nothing heavy this week. Um, but I, I want to leave you with one more type of verbal prayer. I just wanted to tack on the end. I didn't want to put it with the rest because it's, it's called the simple prayer. And, and I, I love it and I practice it all the time as well. And this is for everyone. This is the easiest sort of type of prayer that there is. Um, for me, oftentimes, this is simply one or two words. Okay? Um, this is, thank you. You know what I mean? Like, close my eyes and I'm just like, thank you. Um, I oftentimes am thankful for this breeze right here. Because those lights are hot. You know, there's this moment where you just thank God for something, right? Um, thank you. Or that's beautiful. And you're, you're talking to nobody in particular. You're talking to God. Um, help. 
right? <laughs> or be with me now. I, f- I feel sort of the flesh rising up in me and I'm about to do something that is not Christ-like. Be with me. Take over. Jesus, take the wheel. Um, I, am, I am not alone. Like when you feel this, I'm not alone. I'm not in this by myself. I'm not alone. Um, that last song that we sang um, that was written at the very beginning of the pandemic and it has become sort of a, um, uh, a song that I have been singing constantly to myself and my brain like through the whole pandemic and, and it was just weird the way it worked out how it became this, this thing where we were all sort of alone and separated and that song became for me like this thing, oh, I'm not alone. I've never been alone, not, not for a second. And it's sort of this reminder, the simple prayer is this really beautiful, helpful thing. It's in a moment of sudden surprise or sudden joy or sudden terror, this reminder that I'm not alone. And so these are the few of the tools um, that I, I, I wanted to give you in case you've never heard of them. Jump into them. There's a, there's a book I've been using the last probably four years now. Um, I'm doing it again this year. It starts every year in January and it, it goes uh, through the whole year and every day it's a, it's, a, it's a prayer to pray, it's a passage to read, and it's a, uh, a figure in church history to read about. It's, it's by, written by Shane Claiborne. It's called A Common Book of Prayer for Ordinary Radicals. Um, and it's a really great book. And there's even a little pocket version that's got less. Um, but it's got prayers for every occasion in the back of it, for weddings, for funerals, for, for gatherings, for people who need encouragement, for people who um, are feeling lonely. It's got all kinds of just pray, guided prayers. So if you don't know how to talk to God, you don't have to know how to talk to God. There's people who have gone before you who want to teach you. And the only way to learn is to take part in what they're doing. And so check that out. And if I think of other resources, I'll, 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 I'll try to bring some. But I also always encourage Richard Foster's book. We have a copy of it in the lobby. Uh, it's called Celebration of Discipline. Um, that's what I have for you today. I, 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 I want you to sort of ponder that this week. Think of the type of prayer that you pray, how it forms you. Is there something that can form you towards others more, towards God more? Is there something that can, that can maybe help you understand that um, God may not be doing what you're doing? The church may not have always been doing what you're attempting to do. You may be out of bounds. So maybe you need to sit and write a collect prayer. Maybe your request should be couched in this conversation. And so yeah, let's close in prayer and then we'll do the uh, Lord's Prayer together. Father, thank you for everyone in this room. Guide us. Um, Help us to see each other and hear each other. Um, Convict us of our our wrong ways of thinking about you, um, about each other. I pray that we would be able to fight back against the enemy-making machines going on all around us, that we would be able to push back uh, and that prayer would be a huge sort of crutch that would help us get through all of this. Um, I pray that, uh, that a year from now that we would be better prayers, that we would just be better at this, that every year we would get better at this. Even if it's just 1%, continue to grow us in this way. Um, do your work this week. Thank you, Father. Amen. You guys stand with me, and uh, we'll close out with the Lord's Prayer, and we will be on our way. Let's do it nice and loud together, all right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace. Love you all. Have the greatest Sunday of your life.